everybody, this is Tyler. Um, so this is a mini-sode number seven, I believe. Uh, so, okay. This one is sort of just for me. You don't have to listen. I will not be talking a lot about movies uh, during this mini-sode. Uh, and by the way, speaking it's yeah, it, these are called mini-sodes because, in theory, they're supposed to be shorter than actual episodes. This one might be, it might not. I'm not sure. Um, it probably won't be any longer than an hour, but I expect it to be, hopefully, around a half hour. Um, <clears throat> so, if you've listened to More Than One Lesson or Battleship Pretension for really any length of time, uh, you know that my father uh, is dead. You know this because I bring it up a lot. Um I get very self-conscious about how often I talk about it um, because I, I'm positive that every time I mention it, somebody's thinking, oh, great, yes, okay, we get it, Tyler. Your father is dead. I got it. Um, so I don't bring it up that often. However, as I've said before, it is I do consider it one of the defining moments of my life uh, when I found out uh, about him. And... So, and it really did just change my perspective on a lot of things. Um, you know, it made me uh, really try to cherish my wife in a way that I probably wouldn't otherwise. And it had a number of other negative impacts on my life as well. But um, the thing is this, I found that after a while I would only talk about him in the context of him being gone. Um and there is a reason for that. Uh, one of them is that it, it just became a fact of my life. Um, I would say my father is dead. I would say it like I would say the sky is blue. It's just a, it's, it's just a, a fact. Um, I didn't really think much about it. Um, it's sort of a distancing technique. But um, I really got tired of talking about him only like that. Um, as if the only thing he ever did that was notable was die. Uh, I did have 20 years with him, and I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Uh, the reason why is because um, today, April 18th, is 10 years since he passed away. Uh, he passed away, uh, seemingly, we don't, we're not totally sure. I don't think we had like an autopsy or anything, but... Uh, apparently of um, a heart attack uh, when he was 50, uh, April 18th, 2002. So I have been uh, anticipating this for a while. Um, 10 years is, of course, a very significant number and made all the more significant because of the math. I am 30, um, he was 20 when I, uh, I was 20 when, when he passed away. And so it is now very easy to calculate that for one third of my life, he has been gone. And that is troubling. And it's very strange to think, but I don't know. It's, uh, it's been a very emotional week, I would say. But like I said, I, I don't, I don't want to only talk about the fact that he is dead. Um, I've spoken quite enough about that. I want to uh, talk about some other things. So, first off, I want to talk about 
movies. I, I said there wasn't going to be a lot of talk about it, and there won't be. There will be a little bit here and there, but, uh, but I want to start with that. Um, growing up, uh, I thought of my dad. My dad's name, by the way, was Kevin Smith. Yes, much like the filmmaker, that is unfortunate. But um, growing up, I knew my dad as a sports guy. Um, he loved specifically baseball. He really liked baseball and his team was the California angels, which is, they've since gone on to be the, the Anaheim angels. And then I think the Los Angeles angels of Anaheim, it's very convoluted. I still have a California angels hat that I wear. So, uh, so he was very much into that. And, uh, my brother and I played sports. Uh, I did not like sports, but you know, my parents put me uh, into it, and and my brother liked sports and was good at sports. Um, I was more into drawing and writing stories and that sort of thing. So I really did not feel very close to my dad because I felt like I couldn't really relate to him. I would not have put it in those terms because I would be four. Um, but... And that's one of many things that kept me sort of distanced from my dad. I don't want this thing to turn into like a canonization of him. He was he was far from perfect. He was very human. He had a lot of flaws. He could be very quiet and sort of unemotional. Um, I sometimes wonder if he... I don't know if he really knew how to relate to younger children. And so I always felt a little intimidated by him. But there was also just the feeling that like I, I felt like we had nothing in common. And then as I got a little bit older, and I, I, I mean, I loved movies as far back as, as I can uh, recall. Um, and I, my parents enjoyed movies as well, but I didn't really know how much until I got a little bit older and I started taking movies seriously. And once I moved, uh, like when I lived in Denver, but then certainly when I moved to Missouri, I came to realize how absolutely blessed I was to have the parents that I had. Um, and I will include my mom in this uh, as well. This isn't just about uh, my dad in this case. Um as we've said before, there are Christians who are raised in the in the church, and their parents teach them that there is nothing worse than than Hollywood in general and an R-rated movie in in particular. And my parents never had that attitude. They they stressed discernment. And as you know from the website, uh, the slogan of more than one lesson is "Movie Talk for the Discerning Christian," because that's what it is hopefully that's what I strive for anyway, that it's not about what, if it's PG, PG 13 R, even NC 17, that's not what it's about. It's about the content. It's about what we can get out of it. And so many other Christian parents were saying, you cannot, you literally cannot get anything out of an R rating. And my parents did not believe that. And I am so grateful that they did not shame me or guilt me when I chose to go see certain movies. Um, and uh, as I got a little bit older, my parents actually recommended some movies to me that, you know, uh, 
<laughs> you don't often expect uh, parents to recommend to their children. One of them, uh, and I've just got a quick list here. It's just four movies right now. Uh, these are just off the top of my head. Uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which is a wonderful film with uh, Steve Martin and John Candy. Uh, a Fish Called Wanda, which is a film that is very... Um, it's got all kinds of like sexual humor in it. It was, it was considered to be very in very bad taste, but both my parents really liked it and they recommended it. Um, my dad and I went to see LA confidential and I really loved it. That was 97. And then my dad said, well, if you like LA confidential, you'll really like Chinatown. And so I watched Chinatown and sure enough, I did love it. Um, my dad's favorite movie was it happened one night and I think, I think I saw it in, in, in school. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really wonderful film. Um, so those are just some of the movies that both my parents, but my dad specifically, I always considered him more of a movie person than my mom. Uh, but my mom certainly loved movies and still loves movies. Um, although we differ in taste a little bit now. Um, so once once I started getting into film, my dad really kind of seized on that, and I think he was excited about it, because it's almost as though my being into film gave him an excuse to really embrace it. Um, there are a number of movies that I got to watch with my dad um, that I know a lot of film lovers, Christian or otherwise, uh, of my generation, they found on their own in college and such. I didn't have to, thankfully. I had my dad. I had an older brother as well who helped me out with some things. But, you know, my dad and I, we watched Fargo together. Um, I already mentioned LA Confidential. We saw uh, The Thin Red Line. We saw Wonder Boys, The Big Lebowski, Deconstructing Harry. We even watched uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which, by the way, my dad did not care for. He didn't like that one. I don't think I liked it that much either. It's a, a difficult film to really enjoy. Um, but just just getting to see these movies. And there was another film, uh, you know, lesser known films. In the, like there was one called Smoke with uh, Harvey Keitel and William Hurt. There's a film called Lone Star with Chris Cooper and Matthew McConaughey, like smaller films. And my parents sought these films out and I would watch them with my parents or with, with my dad often. And I, I don't think I fully appreciated what that was at the time. Um, but I do now because when I talk to other people, they just say like they had to, they were completely on their own when it came to a love of film. And I really was not. Um, but what was interesting is just the way my, my dad approached movies. I remember, uh, uh, the thin red line came out in 1998 and that was the same year as saving private Ryan. Of course, saving private Ryan is a very good film. And that got, because it's a Spielberg film, it had Tom Hanks and it had that really amazing opening sequence on the beach. That's the film that got talked about and rightfully so. It's a very good movie. Um, and so my dad and I, we went and saw that in the theater and we really liked it. And then uh, on video, I don't think there was DVD at the time, or at least we didn't have uh, a DVD player. So we rented The Thin Red Line. And I don't know if you've seen The Thin Red Line, but if you watch that compared to Saving Private Ryan, I mean, one is very different from the other. Um, The Thin Red Line is much more internal. It's much more existential and philosophical. Um, 
and so uh, he and I watched that, and and I liked it, but at the time I think I underestimated my dad, and I assumed that he would think it was a little too uh, you know artsy and that sort of thing. And I asked him what he thought of it, and he said that he loved it, and that he thought it was maybe not better than Saving Private Ryan, but he liked it more than Saving Private Ryan. And I wish, I really wish that we had gone further. I, I wish that I had been a little bit older when that conversation took place, because then I think we could have had a really good conversation about that. Um, but at the time, I think I just took that, and I think at 16, I thought that I liked Saving Private Ryan more, but in retrospect, I mean, Saving Private Ryan, while it is a very good movie, is also very conventional. The Thin Red Line is definitely not conventional, and I think I like that a lot more now. So, um, but it was just interesting that my that my dad, who I who was just an engineer, you know, you don't usually consider engineers to be very creative thinkers. I apologize if there's any engineers listening, um, and that he, when we saw Fargo, he said that was one of the best movies he'd ever seen. And that surprised me. I know, I mean, I know people now, my own age, who don't like Fargo. Um, and in some ways, I took some of my cues from him, and it was, it, it, it surprised me. Um, some of the other movies that uh, my dad enjoyed, he, he tended to like movies about the American, uh, the American dream going bad. That was something that he, because he worked for... Um, uh, oil companies for a good portion of his life, I think for 23, 24 years. Um, he worked for Getty and then for Texaco Oil. And I think he saw the corporate culture and just really didn't like it. And he, he often spoke out uh, against it uh, to my brother and I. Um, not as a, an evil in and of itself, but I think he recognized that that he could not really define himself by this. And so um, movies like uh, American Beauty and The Insider and Ordinary People, he he liked those. He liked the idea, movies that sort of put out this idea that money cannot actually buy happiness, that there are other things going on. And, you you know, the, the family and ordinary people, they are certainly rich, but their money can't bring... It, the film starts out with a, a kid who... Um, has attempted suicide and his brother has, has died in a boating accident. You know, money can't keep that one, keep the main character from trying to kill himself any more than it can bring, bring back his brother. Um, and I think my dad really respected that idea. Um, and so just, you know, one of the many ways that I feel like my dad shaped me was just getting me to, love movies not getting me to love movies i I already loved movies but encouraging that and shaping that and recommending things to me um and i'm very grateful to him for that so um i do want to talk about some of the things uh, some of the personal things about uh my dad um and i will try not to go into specifics because some of these are, are family uh, issues, and so I don't want to go into a lot of detail. But what I will say is that um, my dad uh, never knew his actual father. Uh, his dad uh, cut out when my dad was one and a half, so he never actually knew him. Uh, he knew a series of stepfathers, and the one that was in there for the bulk of the time, his name was Ken. 
Um, and he was based on what my mom has told me and what my dad had told me when, uh, when he was alive, of course, when he was alive, he didn't tell me afterwards. Um, Ken was, uh, something of a drunk and was very, very abusive. Um, I don't think he was physically abusive to my dad, although apparently he had that in him with, uh, other, uh, other, uh, family members, but he was very emotionally abusive and verbally abusive. He often said, cause that's the thing is my, my dad was very smart. Um, like I said, he went on to become an engineer and he was very intelligent and, uh, this guy, Ken, uh, my dad's stepfather, he apparently had not graduated high school. And so I think he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder. And so he regularly, I, I think he felt threatened by my dad. And so he regularly said like, you may have book sm- smarts, but you, you don't have any common sense. You're not going to amount to anything. Um, and he, uh, apparently really hammered that into my dad's head to the point where my dad really seemed to really seemed to digest that and sort of define himself by that idea that he needed to prove himself somehow that he needed to prove that he had common sense and that he could make something of himself. Um, a common theme in my dad's life was a desire to make a difference so much so that on his tombstone it says he made a difference uh that's you know maybe a little cheesy but that's what we put on there because he always wanted that and i think that he i think that he did if i were to ask him i don't know what he would say I don't know if he thinks he made a difference or not, but I think he did. And here's, and I'm going to continue talking about some of the ways in which he did. So, um, so that was the environment in which he grew up and, you know, he could have been a very resentful person for, you know, not having a real dad in his life and instead having this drunken, abusive guy. Um, but he, at no point, while I, while I did say that he seemed at times to be quiet and not very emotional, at no point would I ever say that he seemed bitter or resentful. Um, so much so that, uh, well, I'll, 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 get back, I'll get to that a little later. So my dad did become a Christian, I think, in his uh, teenage years. And he and my mom, uh, you know, were very strong, committed Christians. And... They, you know, my dad did all kinds of stuff for the church. He would be, you know, when my church in Missouri needed a youth pastor, he, even though he never considered himself to be that sort of thing, he saw a need for it. And so he stepped in and took charge of some of the more administrative aspects of, of that. Um, when the church needed money, um, my dad and my mom, of course, this affects her as well. And, and she was, you know, willing to go along with it, but, uh, they were willing to donate large amounts of money. Um, the church that I, uh, that I attended in Ventura, California, apparently my, my dad was on the uh, church board and the church wanted to give a raise to the pastor, but the church didn't have a great deal of money and it came down to either a raise for the pastor or, you know, money that would go 
overseas to missionaries and the pastor said, well, I'm not going to take money away from missionaries. So, uh, I'll go without. Um, and at the time my dad had just gotten a raise and he said, you know what? I don't like the idea of this. I will donate my, basically the year, my, my, the difference. Um, and so he donated that an entire year's worth of his raise to the church so that the pastor could get a raise. And, uh, uh, I know that because my, uh, mom told me, but then also to prepare for this, I was going through some papers and in a file that had to do with, uh, my father's funeral and that sort of thing. And, uh, in it was an email that my mom had printed out for me from that pastor telling that story. So, um, my parents very much really wanted to support the church. My mom still does. Um, she, she sees a, a financial need in the church or, or, you know, individuals and she will, uh, try to help out where she can. But here's the other thing. And this is something that always fascinated me. I will tell a very quick story. When I lived in Denver, when my, when my family lived in Denver, um, my church there, they, they liked it. They were very involved in it. And I think it was going to be the, I think the church leaders had decided that they were going to do some reconstruction on the church, um, or remodeling, I guess is the, is the word. It's not the reconstruction is what the South did after the civil war. Anyway, some remodeling. And because admittedly, if you saw the church, everything about it did have kind of a 60s, 70s vibe. And I think they wanted to make it a bit more practical and a bit more uh, current. And so they decided that they were going to do this. And it was a fairly large church. And we had a number of of like bands. Um, you know, we had the choir and then we had the band itself. And then we had like these four guys who would come out and sing uh, I, I, they had a name and now I don't remember it, but anyway, they would come out and sing from time to time. And, and, and so after it was announced that, Hey, this is something we're going to do. Then they brought the guys out to sing a song by, uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, I think called the great adventure. And the idea is, I don't care for the song, but the idea was that, Hey, we're embarking on this thing. We're about to embark on a great adventure. Here we go. And everything about it was supposed to like rev you up for this new thing that the church was going to be doing. And I remember going out to eat with my parents and my brother after church and my, and my mom and dad were having a discussion about uh, this decision and I, and they were both in favor of it. Um, but my dad specifically commented on not liking the tone that the church had struck that if it was ju- if it was a good idea, then they should just emphasize the merits of the idea that they shouldn't try to whip people up because it seemed to him, I think, somehow insincere or at the very least manipulative. Like it was a good idea. The church, it, there was a way for it through remodeling to utilize more of its space and to ac- accommodate more people. Um, so it was a good idea, but why couldn't they have just focused on the idea? Why did they have to get people going? And, and I, and he seemed bothered by it. I, the, the way he even said it, I, he described it almost as a pep rally and said, he's like, you know, the church is all like, rah, rah, let's do this. And he's like, they should just do it. They should just, you know, 
tell people that this is what we're going to do. I think they also had to put it to a vote, but this is what we're going to do, and here's why it's a good idea. And so the idea that somebody who could be, who is a Christian and very much in support of the church could disagree with it, and not, not I don't even mean theologically, just as, as far as the way it's put out there, you know, in, in its execution, the, fa- the, the fact that he could disagree with that while still embracing what the church was and what it stood for, that fascinated me. And as you know, I'm sure you've, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, I'm sure you are able to tell that at times I am at odds with the Christian community, not in spirit, but often in execution. And uh, there will actually be an episode posting tomorrow uh, about among other things, that that tone that we sometimes strike, um, you know, the church can sometimes be a little too divisive, and sometimes we mistake execution for uh, intention and for motivation. And so we look at the way somebody expresses their faith, and we we tend to ascribe aspects of their faith to that, so that if they're not expressing themselves in the way that we like, you know, the way that we like and we approve of, then we start to question their actual faith. And that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, That is not a good thing to do. What I'm talking about is just the idea of that you can be a part of an institution and believe in that institution and question it. And there's nothing wrong with that. Provided you're doing it in a, in a loving way. And, and both my mom and dad are like that. Um, you know, I, I don't want to uh, ruffle any feathers, so I won't go into a great deal of detail, but I know that um, my mom, uh, since my dad's passing, has been in a situation where um, she was part of a, a church board in which, you know, she didn't really like the way things were being run, and the church was, I don't know, having some troubles, and and uh, there started to be a little too much control in the hands of not a lot of people, the way it, it wasn't structured quite the way it should have been. And um, when asking her, you know, well, why, why don't you just leave? And she said, I'd rather be part of the solution, you know, and be in it than just leave people to the problem. And so this is a function of both my parents. It's not just, uh, not just my dad, but I, I very much remember that story of him questioning the execution and learning that that's an okay thing. So I want to, and, and that, that will be a common theme here, by the way, this idea that you can still love something and disagree with it, but that your love has to conquer it. Uh, That has to, to win ultimately. So, a moment ago, I talked about Ken, my dad's stepfather, and <laughs> this idea that he was just I, discouraging seems uh, too soft, uh, abusive, and just just a very bad person. Um, and periodically, he would, uh, even after he divorced my dad's mom. Uh, he continued a, a relationship with with my dad to a certain extent. That is to say, he would occasionally call and ask for money, and my dad would give it to him. 
And that was basically it. Um, I remember I met Ken once in Denver. He was visiting. I didn't, I don't, I think I was a little too young to even really understand what the relationship was between the two because my dad never really talked about him. Uh, and apparently they were just in town uh, for, uh, I won't go into detail, but they were in town for a specific reason and uh, stopped in to say hello. And by the way, I need some money. And so my dad provided that. And years later, um, Ken was in the hospital and it was pretty much assumed that he was dying. Um, and my dad and the various other, uh, kids, they took, they kind of in shifts, they would go and visit him. Um, and I remember one time I, I, I actually went, we lived in Springfield at the time and this was in Tulsa. And so it was a bit of a drive. And uh, one time I opted to go with my dad and we saw Ken in the hospital um, and he looked very bad. And my dad just sat there and talked with him. It was no, it was no big cinematic discussion of I forgive you and all that sort of thing. It, it wasn't anything like that. It was just a casual thing. Um, but the very fact that my dad was willing to go um, astounds me. The fact that he was willing to take calls from this man astounds me. Um, and then when Ken did finally pass away, there was no money for a funeral. And so, um, my dad and the other kids, they all chipped in to pay for the funeral. And that astounds me as well. I, I don't understand that. I, <laughs> I am somebody that can hold grudges for years Decades, in fact, now I'm 30. So yes, decades. Um, and the idea that this man who I would say planted the seed that caused my dad to become a workaholic and eventually I'm convinced work himself to death. Um, this man did not deserve to be visited in the hospital by the very person that he said would not amount to anything. But my dad, for whatever reason, well, I know the reason, um, he decided that this was something he had to do. And I will tell one more story along these lines, and uh, I will have to keep names out of it because everybody involved is still alive. Um... I believe it was my, I believe I was 19 and I was friends with somebody who I can't, whose name I won't say. Um, and he and his parents always kind of clashed and, uh, and, uh, and one night, and I don't think his parents really liked that he was hanging out with me because frankly, I was somebody who said rated R movies are fine and. I was a bad example, a uh, bad influence. I'm sorry. And so, um, anyway, uh, one night it was about 2 a.m. I, I stay up late. Was it 2 a.m.? It, it was right around there, I think. And I got a knock at the door. Uh, now this was our, our house had a finished basement and the basement had a door that led outside. And so someone was knocking at that door, which is very jarring. And I opened it up and it was my friend and he was crying. And I asked what was going on, 
and he said that uh, he had gotten in a big fight with his parents and that his dad had physically uh, gone after him. And uh, so it's like, oh, geez, that's pretty rough. Uh, do you want to, you know, do you want to stay here? And he said yes. And so uh, I went up to my parents who were sleeping and I said, hey, just letting you know uh, that this person, this friend, uh, he and his parents got in a big fight and his dad went after him physically and he's going to stay the night here. And, and my parents woke up and decided that this needed to be handled. Oh, what I had said rather stupidly was, um, was, Hey, you know, I think his parents should know where he is. So I'm going to drive over and let them know that he's, he's at our place. And it is a good thing that I wound up not doing that because I probably would have gotten punched in the face. So, um, or the, you know what, at the very least yelled at. And I don't, I don't like either of those. So when I told my parents that I was going to do that, both of them woke up and my mom called and said, Hey, I was just letting you guys know that, uh, so-and-so is over here and is going to be staying here tonight. And then there was a long pause and she said, she then said, oh, okay, well, as long as we're talking to them, perhaps we can tell them about how you treat your child. And I could tell immediately, ah, okay, my friend's parents had uh, threatened uh, to call the cops. So uh, my mom could not, uh, understandably, you know, she was, uh, she's very protective uh, of my brother and myself and my friends. She, uh, she always had a, a heart for my friends. And so... Uh, but she was clearly very passionate. And so my dad sort of took over and it was decided that, uh, my friend, my friend's parents were going to come over, pick up the car that my friend had used to drive over and that my friend would stay at my place and that my uh, dad would drive him back over the next day. So my mom, my friend and I were in the basement and my dad was just upstairs waiting for them to show for my friend's parents to show up. So there's a knock on the door. My dad opens it and my dad says, hi, Kevin Smith in a way that implied he was doing some sort of business deal and, and nothing was askew. Um, the first thing said by my friend's father was where's so-and-so. And my dad said, well, he's here and he's, he's going to stay here. So, but here's the key to the, to the car and, uh, you know, I'll bring him back over tomorrow. And, and that was it. So by this time, I think it was like 4am and my mom went to sleep and my dad was downstairs with my friend and I, and my dad suggested that I go to sleep. So I did. Uh, and my dad just stayed up with my friend for, and I've, I've asked my friend about this for probably another 45 minutes to an hour. And and he spent that time sort of asking the facts of the of the situation and say, and then convincing my friend trying to convince my friend that his father actually does love him. And that you know, stuff like this can happen. And it sounded as though, you know, uh, my friend had been kind of mouthy against his mother in front of his father and stuff like that can be a little rough. My brother could be 
rather uh, rather mouthy as well. And once he was mouthy against my mom in front of my dad, and my dad grabbed him by the shoulders. He didn't really do anything else, but he did that as a way of saying, "You no, you're not going to do that. You're not going to not going to talk that way to your mother and to my wife." And I think when talking to my friend, I think he he kind of got a flash of that, but nonetheless. I was I was always fascinated at the notion that that he could he could have in that hour he could have said hey you know what your dad did was wrong and if anything ever happens again you let me know he could have done that but he didn't instead he tried he, he could have poisoned my friend against his father but he didn't he tried to appeal to something else, something bigger. I think he understood to a certain extent where my friend was coming from um, in, in the, the possible resentment and the frustration that he could feel to, towards his dad. And I remember just having tremendous respect for my dad at first at first i was mad because at the time i was very upset with my friend's parents um and they went on by the way to forbid uh that friend uh from you know talking to me or hanging out with me and all of that so uh so i was a little so that's the thing i held the grudge for a long long time as i said before um so i was kind of mad that my dad had not you know taken our side um but he had chosen instead the side of general civility and f- and the idea of family. And that's something that I went on to respect a great deal. And I spoke to my friend recently uh, about this. And he said that, you know, uh, that he respected my dad as well, but that he also has since then not purely as a function of what my dad said, but partially he has since then thought about that evening and actually can now sympathize with his father a great deal and their, and their relationship has gotten a great deal better. Um, but it's just something that, that just fascinates me because that more than anything else is something that I really wish was still around which is to say I wish that my dad was still around and I could talk to him about it. Because, you know, I, I do this podcast and it has come under fire from time to time. And every little criticism, every little criticism that comes up can floor me, can really just take it out of me. And by the way, some of those criticisms have not been little. They have been huge. And it it just takes the wind out of me. And I get angry and I get bitter and I get depressed and I just want to, I just want to lash out at those people. But then I think of my dad and I think of that story with my friend and I think of Ken and I realize that my dad he did not let other people's behavior determine what his reaction was going to be. He understood that love and compassion 
and forgiveness is a choice. It is a hard choice a lot of the time, but it is a choice that you make. And and I wish that he was still here so that I could talk to him about some of this stuff and find out more about how he was able to do it. How he was able to forgive his stepfather for the things that he said. But he's not here. And and he hasn't been here for 10 years. And I do miss him a lot. But I do count myself very, very lucky. That I had 20 years with him. I have friends who have fathers that are still alive and they have a terrible relationship and ostensibly their relationship will never improve. And I feel like it's probably better to have 20 good years with a father that loves you and cares about you and tries to teach you the right things than, you know, 50 or 60 years with a father that's just crap. And the way I see it, I you know, I used to I used to have a certain resentment not towards my dad, I guess you could say towards God, but I guess just towards life in general that that I suddenly was lacking a resource that my friends had. That my friends could always turn to their dads for guidance or advice or whatever. And I felt like I didn't have that. And so they, they had an advantage, but the way I see it, if my dad could turn out the way that he did without really any father at all, then I could probably do okay with the 20 years that I had with him. And the reason for that is because, and yes, this is where I'm headed, because I have a heavenly father whose love does not go away, whose forgiveness is unconditional, And that is the example, not my dad's. Like I said, my dad wasn't perfect. He made a lot of mistakes. But the example of Christ is the one that I need to follow. And that's the one that my dad followed. That's why he was able to forgive somebody who was so abusive to him. Because it's been said you know, over and over that as Christ was on the cross, he could have called down a million angels to get out of it. Was it a million? I think 10,000 is usually what people say. 
He could have called down 10,000 angels to get out of it, but instead he prayed for those that were crucifying him. And that, that in itself is astounding. And that's the thing is I, I, I feel like I feel like if I can talk for about 44 minutes and 34 seconds roughly about my dad and then end up talking about Jesus. I think that's exactly what my dad would have wanted. I think that's the the difference that he would have wanted to make. That ultimately it's not about him and the kind of father he was. It is about the kind of people we can be if we try to if we try to follow Christ and we will fail but that we can we can find the love and acceptance that maybe we can't find in our parents or in our friends or in society in general we can always find that in Christ so anyway i am shocked that i got through that without really breaking down. I got close. You probably heard it. But um, anyway, I just wanted to say all that because I was tired of talking about him as just somebody that died. I wanted you to know about him a little bit. And frankly, I wanted to think about him. And I wanted to talk about him. Thank you for listening. I'll get you next time. Bye.